As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. wherever and whoever you are on the planet. No, your ears aren't playing tricks with you. This is not Alan B. Smith. Indeed, this is Carol Carl, host of Behind the Obsidian Curtain here on KGRARadio.com. We're sitting in for Alan tonight. It's still paranormal now, and we are still going to cover all those wonderful things we usually do. Fear not, Alan is quite well and healthy. He has just maxed out on a bunch of projects that have come in his direction, uh, some of it to do with the fact that most of us are shut in now and things have to reconfigure etc but you all know what we're talking about let's lift ourselves out of this shall we for just a bit for actually two hours we have a fascinating topic tonight it's called america's stonehenge and our guest tonight is dennis stone let's just read his bio and dennis you're there on the line correct i am here carol good evening Ab- Absolutely. Good evening. So anytime you, you uh, find something like you something that needs to be addressed within the bio, feel free to just go ahead and interrupt me. Let's do it like this. Dennis Stone is the president of America's Stonehenge. He graduated from Daniel Webster College in 1977 with a degree in aviation management and was a full-time commercial pilot for over 35 years before he retired in 2016. America's Stonehenge was opened to the public in 1958 by Dennis's father, Robert Stone. By the way, that name, Stone, Stonehenge, is is that not perfect? That's, you know, you can't make that stuff up. (laughs) Dennis has been involved in America's Stonehenge for most of his life and has always had a fascination with archaeology and archaeoastronomy. Since retiring, Dennis has found many serpentine walls and spirit windows throughout the site, among many other new discoveries. He's taken numerous courses, and he's traveled extensively to ancient sites, both in the United States and international venues. His family includes his wife, Pat, his son, Kelsey, and his daughter-in-law, Catherine. Hobbies, of course, there are hobbies, traveling, indeed, boating, and classic cars. So, hello again, Dennis. How, how are you? Oh, I'm doing good, Carol. Thank you so much for having me on this evening. 
Well, it's really, this is terrific, It's and it is not our first rodeo. Before I forget, and it slips through the cracks, um, I want to send props to Mark Eddy, who is definitely the secretary of the world for even connecting us to begin with, and that was all done through uh, Ron Tolvatar at ERT Radio. So we have had a chance to back and forth before, and we're going to do it again uh, later in the next month on Behind the Obsidian Curtain. So, you know, something that is amazing to me that that I didn't realize, um, I, you know, uh, as per the video that is on your fantastic website, uh, and that is, again, let's see, I want to get that right. It is, um, it's not the website. Give us the title of the website specifically. Is yeah, it Stone- uh, the w- yeah it's StonehengeUSA.com. Right. So um, if you type in, if one searches America's Stonehenge, you'll get it. Uh, But StonehengeUSA.com is um, maybe a faster, easier way to do it. Um, And I love it. The the video on that site, um, on, on the overlay before it starts to play, it's it's an Albert Einstein quote. The most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. And that is that to me. That's such a wonderful choice um, of words because there is nothing that that says mystery, you know, um, like this place does. Um, and I was also intrigued by something that I hadn't realized before, that uh, during the abolition times, um, that there were false walls built for the underground railroad on that site. <clears throat> well, that's correct. Yeah. So the site has a lot of history, uh, both history and prehistory to it. <clears throat> and it's certainly an important part of it was back in the 1800s when it was part of the Underground Railway. And they did find a, a slave manacle there back in the 1930s when the initial archaeological work began. And um, it's in Wilbur Siebert's, I believe his name is Wilbur Siebert's book, The Underground of Massachusetts. Mm. And he wrote The Underground of Ohio, The Underground of New York, and we're in the Massachusetts part. And uh, there's actually um, talks about a gentleman named Mr. Poor and a Mr. Hussey about 20 miles south of here in Shawshine Village in Massachusetts, where that was one of the underground stations. And they would bring the slaves to our place during the course of the evening. And there was a third gentleman, I forget his name, and they actually had the name of the horse named Nellie. <laughs> so, oh, for heaven's sake. <laughs> wow. but, yeah. uh, but most of it was done in secrecy, but so we have a few, a few details, you know. And then the gentleman would bring the uh, slave or slaves to our place and they would be there only you know for a night or two until they traveled further north towards Canada but the gentleman would be back in time for breakfast back in Shawshank Village so it was done very quietly over the course of an evening and about I think about a 40 mile round trip roughly you know so but it was part of the underground um, network for sure. Right. I, I'm thinking of that old uh, folk song, Follow the Drinking Gourd, which uh, definitely exactly. would, would figure in uh, to that that uh, geolocation. Uh, that, that's incredible. And mm-hmm. now, all right, so then going forward, and what can I say, but there is something to me about the energy that would remain in an area where something like that, because that, you know, we, we sort of, we kind of absorb this, we throw it off, but we can't um, really appreciate what that must have been like for everyone involved, because the gentlemen who who were hiding the slaves, uh, they were they were doing that. I, I'm sure that the risk was enormous for everybody involved. And there, uh, yes. yeah, it was. Yeah, they, they were actually. Uh, there was a 
federal people out looking and also slave hunters looking. So, and in 1850, the uh, fugitive law was passed, and that's the year after Mr. Patty, the gentleman, had helped. But even before that, it was illegal to help slaves. You know, you weren't supposed to be caught helping them. You could go to jail or pay, face fines, your family and you. So, exactly. Yeah, I'm sure it was nerve-wracking, and I'm sure they're always worried about it. So they had to do it very carefully and very quietly and leave really no paper trail if they could, you know, that right. this was going on. And and mm-hmm. I... I do recall um, when I was researching something that that uh, was coincidental to that era, um, spiritualism, American spiritualism, uh, in New York, there there was uh, a meme besides uh, it, leaving no paper trail. That's what triggered this in my memory. Uh, there were quilts mm-hmm. that were stitched that had mm-hmm. clues and patterns in them, and they would hang them over various fences and external walls, and and you would go from quilt to quilt. It would it would uh, give you the directions. Um, and, and of course you would be tipped off to this ahead of time. Um, but those energies, so we have, we have, uh, I guess we could call those modern times, um, archeologically, mm-hmm. um, and, and with, and, and so overlaid or fueled by, I'm just so intrigued by that combined energy. So Jonathan Patty's cave now, now Jonathan Patty, um, in, I'm, I'm looking at something from the uh, 1907 uh, publication called The History of Salem, New Hampshire. That was 1907. So we, we go forward now in time, um, past the slavery times. Um, and Jonathan Patty, was he the initial owner of, of the area? Uh, no, it was actually uh, in 16, I think, 67, we have a report of uh, two Native Americans that sold the land for three pounds and I think 16 shillings, uh, if my memory serves me correctly. And it became part of the Haverhill, Massachusetts, part of the Haverhill Peak. And I just came across several maps that show that peak. And one, one, and it's like a triangle that came out of uh, Massachusetts into this area. And so we were part of Massachusetts until 1741, when the southeast part of New Hampshire and the northeast corner of uh, Massachusetts uh, was established. It was fought over for many years where the boundary was. So mm. it was part of Massachusetts at the time. And uh, so the Patties um, did purchase the land from the sale of the Haverhill proprietors, they called them. And they bought a piece of land. It was a gentleman named Seth Patty. There were five generations of shoemakers. Uh, people call them farmers, although they did have domesticated animals and they did do some farming like everybody pretty much did back in those days. Mm-hmm. They were shoemakers by trade. You know, they were cord wainers. And um, and it was Jonathan's grandfather that bought the first piece of the hill we call America Stonehenge. And the hill is called Mystery Hill, the whole hill. Um, it never had a name until my dad got involved with it in the 1950s. There were nicknames for it, mm-hmm. Patty's Hill and Patty's Caves, you know. But, yes. um, but it never, you know, until we opened it up in 1958, it, it, it didn't really have an official name. And then it went on the topographical maps, and it still is today called Mystery Hill. And it's a 360-foot hill above sea level. You know, we're in southern New Hampshire, about 40 miles north of Boston and about 20 miles from the ocean. And so the Patty's grandfather bought a piece of the land. And sometime after 1750, when Salem was incorporated, um, they started building houses in this area. And that's probably when the house was built up on top of the hill. And, um, and it went from the grandfather to the son to Jonathan by 1802. And Christmas Eve, he got the land from his mother in a quick claim. And then he, 1801, excuse me, Christmas Eve of 1801. And the next year he moved into the house. We think the, um, the mother actually may have uh, lived there for a while. Her husband died in 1778 from war injuries, actually, from the uh, Revolutionary War. Wow. She marries like a third cousin and moves away. And I don't know if anybody stayed in the house for a few decades 
but Jonathan takes it over. So they're basically shoemakers um, and had domesticated animals. And we're, by some accounts, given credit for building a 110-acre complex of stone structures, you know, by by some people, you know. But we yes. think it's an ancient ceremonial site. And the Patties modified it, you know, to fit their needs. Uh, they had a house. And we've never been able to find the barn, though, because he had horses, obviously, and he probably had a few cows. We have his tax records. And for three years, he was actually a tax collector for the town of Salem. And before the Underground Railway from 1830 to 1837, he took in the town paupers. He had a bid every year, put a bid out, and I guess the lowest bid got it. And he made one year $360 for taking, he had up to, I believe, 11 uh, poor people living with him. They call them the paupers, you know, poor people that couldn't take care of themselves. Yes, right. And he actually made money doing that, yeah. By the end of uh, 1837, he no longer took in the town paupers after about six years. And that's, I believe, when the Underground Railway began. The house was empty because he had five daughters. Uh, he had two sons. One son died in Boston at uh, going on 18 years old. We don't know what happened to him, but he died pretty young. Hmm. And he had uh, five. So people said, oh, Patty and his six husky sons built the whole complex. But he actually had five daughters. They may have been husky, but I mean, I don't know if they <laughs> right. went out and built walls and everything. In multi-ton slabs, some of the biggest roof slabs yes. weigh 14 tons, you know. So. Yeah, that's, uh, that's that the would Patty be a- legacy. I have a heavy <laughs> undertaking, to say the least. And by yeah, the way, yeah, um, yeah. For, for anybody listening who wants to do a Google on Jonathan Patty, that is spelled P-A-T-T-E-E, um, not like patty cake. So so uh, you might uh, run into a sticking <laughs> point if you want to uh, uh-huh. find that. I, I wanted to ask you, Dennis, um, does any of that initial house, uh, does that still stand? Actually, we think it does. It's, there's a possibility that now Jonathan dies in 1849. And again, he could have had the slaves there, you know, up to the time of his death, maybe even his wife, her name was Betsy, mm-hmm. and her maiden name was Mellon. So she might have stayed there a little bit after, maybe some of the kids helped out, you know, some of that's kind of blurry, we don't have all the details. But um, we think after that point, um, it, the house does go to the son, his name was Seth, it wasn't supposed to, it was supposed to go to the grandson, and the will was hidden or missing for several years. 1863, right around the you know Civil War time, mm-hmm. the will was found, and the grandson realized his name was George that it was supposed to be his property, and oh. maybe there was a family feud going on. I don't know, but he right. turned around Im- immediately and sold the property to a gentleman named Nathaniel H. Paul, who actually was a lumber guy. He came in and took the trees out of there, so there was a lumbering operation going on, and eventually it falls back into the Patty family again later on in that century, you know, in the late 19th century. But uh, the house, we think, was actually taken off its foundation and moved down the hill about about a third of a mile. There's a road that goes right down, and right in front of that road where it comes out on the main street, there's a house. And that book you mentioned by Edgar Gilbert, 1907, The History of Salem, yes. shows a picture of the Patty family standing right there in front of the house. In front of like a oh, bay window, my. I think it is. Oh, my. So. So I, and that house actually replaced the tavern that was there that must have burnt. So I think what happened is they probably recycled the house. They would have moved it down that hill, probably took the chimney down because some of the mm-hmm. bricks are still on the site. Wow. The legend was that the house burnt down there, but the only, they didn't find it back in the 1930s when they did a lot of excavations all the way up to, you know, present. Very little, if any, ash. If the house was consumed, you'd find burnt timbers and, yes. you know, the whole yes. thing, the whole shebang. 
and you just don't. You find a lot of housewares there because whatever broke, they just threw out the windows. Basically, that was their dump, you know, back in those days. People <laughs> wow. just threw stuff out. So it was just kind of good today for archaeologists, you know, when they found out. Exactly. So, but uh, one of the things that may have happened, too, is uh, back in 1825 when Lafayette, uh, Marquis de Lafayette came to America and he traveled over the course of those two years. He was such a hero and he was a 19-year-old general for General Washington, you know. Mm. And he was involved with the French Revolution. He came back as a super superhero, and he was taken on tour of, of the United States. And anything with Lafayette, like uh, either Lafayette or Fayetteville, anything like Fayetteville, North yes, Carolina, yes, those right, all those names, him. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, amazing. You know, I mean, all across America, right out to California. But he may have actually stayed at the Patty Tavern in Salem, and 400 horses showed up there. 400 people on horses were part of the entourage, and they stayed at the Patty Tavern, and that was Patty's cousin. And what I think is he came over, he's missing for three year, hours. He's supposed to go to Derry, New Hampshire, which is right up the street, and go to the girls' school, the Adams Girls' School in Derry. And he's missing for three hours, and the girls are all ready for him to come up here. You know, he was a superhero, you know, and they were right, just waiting for right. this guy, all excited. And three hours later, he showed up late. And I think he came over to pay respects to uh, to Jonathan's dad, to the wife, actually, or Jonathan's mother, I should say, and there were some French revolutionary buttons that were found on the property. That may have been something he gave to the family. You know, it's one of those circumstantial, hard to prove ever. Things. Right. Yes. But, but a lot of research was done on that. And he may have come over to the patties. And, you know, from France, where a lot of the megalithic sites where people speculate maybe he was interested in the ruins, too, you know, besides seeing uh, Patty's um, mother, Jonathan's mother, you know. So, oh, that's a fascinating but, thought. Yes, right. So, be, so that yeah. would mean that if that was the case, mm-hmm. then. Um, that would be um, a little, at least anecdotal evidence that uh, there was something, even though it was mysterious in origin, that there was something there that was of intrigue, something ancient. Right. Yeah. It would have been known. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, so it would have been maybe uh, two things, seeing Patty's, uh, Jonathan's mom, you know, and paying respects to the family and everything. Because he was actually a local hero, Jonathan's dad, you know, because he, he died from, you know, wounds from that war, you know, in 1778. Right. So, um, and then Jonathan's mom was a widow and then she marries, I think it's a second, second cousin, I believe it was. And then she moves away and, but the house I think is standing today. Yeah. It's standing right across from our driveway basically. Uh, and it, um, looks pretty much like it does in the 1907. Avery Gilbert, by the way, was a friend of Robert Frost. And when they were young, they worked down in Lawrence, Massachusetts in the mills together. Oh. So he's kind of poetic too. When he describes exactly. what that place oh. looks like. Yeah. They were friends and my grandfather had Robert for a, for a teacher in Pinkett and Academy, but oh um, my gosh, that, that is absolutely <laughs> striking! Oh, all these incredible overlaps um, of American <clears throat> history, yeah. so intriguing. And speaking of yeah. over, overlaps, um, can yeah. we circle back just briefly to Betsy Mellon? Yeah. Was was she by any chance of the Carnegie Mellon? Was she that Mellon family? Do you know? I think that would be. You know, I've wondered that myself. That's a great question because ah. I'm looking at my deed, and I was looking at my dad's 1990. Um, genealogy done by one of the New England Antiquities Research Association. Now that group's called NERA. My dad started that in 1964. And it's still going strong today to research these ancient sites like America Stonehenge. And they have mm. about 800. One, one of the uh, gentlemen, though, was a um, kind of a genealogist. So he uh, put together my family's, you know, and I was looking at it, it's a really thick binder. And I was looking at it last year. And then I was looking at it recently. My great grandfather, who I never met, he died in 1941. On my dad's side, his name was uh, Everett St. Clair Stone, and that caught me because of the St. Clairs, you know, and the Vinci mm-hmm, Code, the mm-hmm. Roslyn Chapel, and I've been in the Westford Night, which is another interesting thing in Massachusetts. Wow. Which may be an indication that Sir Henry Sinclair 
came over in 1398 to the New World, and um, he went into Western Massachusetts, among other places in the Northeast, including Nova Scotia, and they left a carving of a knight there, and it's about 100 years before Christopher Columbus, which, by the way, Columbus is related by marriage to Sir Henry Sinclair. So I did not know that. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) <laughs> There's a lot of like these things that into overlap, like you say. And, they they do. That's uh, fascinating. But I did find that St. Clair. So I did a little thing on that family search. And sure enough, all in fact, one of the uh, names in England that's connected to my, my great grandfather was uh, Henry St. Clair Stone. And there was a couple other St. Clairs. And it said it is the family tree. So I'm going to try to go back a little further and see if we are. Because in our museum, we have actually a full size cast of that Westward Knight. Um, on our wall. We've had it there for almost 20 years. And the thing now maybe is some relationship between my family and that besides just because it's before Columbus, anything before Columbus we're interested in, you know? Um, yes. So <laughs> you think that may be related to the same quiz? I, I, ju- I don't know. We got to do a little more study. <laughs> All these clues. Yeah. They're, they're so, they're so intriguing. And um, I know mystery yeah. Hill uh, in terms of, of literature, et cetera, uh, that HP Lovecraft wrote of a place uh, that may have been inspired uh, by Mystery Hill, um, his Dunwich Horror, for instance, et cetera, and and the the talk about uh, the ancient uh, sacrificial stone altar, et cetera, um, Martha's Vineyard ish kind of, um, but south. So, uh, what what's your take on on that possibility, or do you have one? Well, we actually had a, um, a number of researchers that looked at that too, and back about 1990 or 89 there was a booklet put out called horror on the hill and it was about the hp lovecraft visit to our site mm-hmm. and that's been i guess um proven and it was it was out of rhode island of course and it came up with another gentleman named munn i think the guy's name was harvey munn it began with yes an yes uh-huh. munn with two n's i think yes right that's it yeah and they came together and i believe their wives came up too and they actually came in and they did visit the site and i guess the only question is did he visit the site in time to you know um make it inspirational for that book, you know, done with right. or yes. wasn't too late. So I don't, I, I think the timing might've been okay, but that's something that people out there that really do research, you know, if they want to help us with that, um, you know, I think that's the only question that remains, but he did visit the site before he passed away. And I think he may have come twice. I'd have to have a booklet in front of me. It's uh-huh. also in my dad's 2003 book, which is called, you know, uh, America Stonehenge, which I don't have a copy in front of me at the moment. But uh, yeah, I loved H.P. Uh, Lovecraft did visit the site. And then there was a question of Aleister Crowley coming up, too, because he did come to New Hampshire during the uh, uh, about a hundred little over 100 years ago. Wow. The, uh, oh, my gosh. Before. Tell us about Aleister Crowley. Wow. Yeah, I went to a place up near Alexandria, New Hampshire, and he named the lake. It's Newfound Lake today is the name of the lake. It's a beautiful one of the purest lakes in New England. And in fact, in the country, I guess it's beautiful. It's in the lakes region of New Hampshire. Apparently, he did come out of Boston on the train. He went through, I guess, Nashville, New Hampshire, on the Boston to Montreal train, I guess. And he got off at a stop there, and he spent some time there. And the name of the lake was something like Pass. I I probably mess up the word, but it's Pasquaddy or something like that. But it's a name uh, that has been used. is that is that uh, I think there's an Abenaki um, Native American tribe yeah. called Passamaquoddy. Would it be Passamaquoddy Lake? You know, you know, it could be, you know, because you are right about that. Um, I think um, if I'm looking at my my dad's book right now, I might be able to find it. But it is a name that was used into the 1800s, and then it became Newfound Lake after that. Mm. So, uh, yeah, so uh, so this possibility he did come uh, to the site. 
And it would have been, I think, around 18, I mean, I'm 1916 or 1917, I think it was. But it was never really, not like um, H.P. Lovecraft. They were never able to, you know, have absolute proof that he did come to the site. Um, but uh, he's an interesting character anyway. Oh, yes, definitely interesting. Uh, you know, what did he, I'm, I'm not sure, did, was he the self-proclaimed most evil man in the world or some such? Um, <laughs> I, I know that, yeah. you know, I, I yeah. just sort of, uh, I would, when I would... <laughs> Yeah, when I'd be doing research, uh, that name was a real stopper to me, and it's sort of like, uh, ah, there's that name. Let's move right along, and I and I never pursued it. But I I think you know, perhaps that he, he right. was just he, he could have been. I suppose it's not too much of a stretch to say that he was ahead of his time and that he was maligned and misunderstood by, uh, shall we say, the powers that be, et cetera. Um, it's, it's a difficult thing to, to really um, have a take on that. Um, you'd almost have to know somebody who knew somebody who wrote a, you know, a biography of, of his. Um, so, so yeah, I, yeah. Oh, you know, and so we're, this is just such a place that is, I mean, the history, the richness is, uh, is incredible. We have two minutes till the break. Um, and, and it's just, uh, we, fortunately we have two hours to really, um, shall we say, dig into this archeologically speaking. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> so, so, uh, you know, William Goodman here, I'm looking at something. This is actually a Wikipedia entry that you may or may not, um, uh, be in agreement with, um, the site's history is muddled partly because of the activities of William Goodman, uh, Goodwin, excuse me, Goodwin, who became convinced that the location was proof that Irish monks or the Caldes had lived there. Uh, did, what, what do you think about that? That was, uh, yeah, William Goodwin's um, uh, theory of the site. First, he thought it was Viking when he first visited it in 1936. In 1937, mm -hmm. he purchased 20 acres of land. And um, he changed his mind after they began clearing the brush and debris so he could get a better look at the site. Mm -hmm. And being all stone structures, you know, huge stone slabs, he goes, gosh, this does not look like, you know, the sod houses or the wooden houses the Vikings would have built for the settlement. Right. He said, I think it must be an Irish colding monk. And that's, even the Viking sagas talk about when they went out of the Faroes, Iceland, Greenland, into Canada, they always were coming across these white-robed men, probably were Irish monks that were preceding them across, you know, heading west into the New World. And so um, his theory, and he wrote a book in 1946 called The Ruins of Great Ireland and New England. And he died in 1950, still believing that the Irish colding monks were responsible for our site. And I believe about 15 out of the site, we have a whole list that he put down. I think it's 15 sites, including ours, that he thought that the Irish monks uh, created as a sanctuary away from the Vikings, for instance. You know, they were fleeing the Vikings and trying to Christianize Native Americans, too, at the same time. All right. Let's, let's the leave. The, we, we, we're up against the <laughs> clock and a break here, Dennis. I'm sorry to do this rude interrupt, but oh, no uh, we will leave it with the uh, incredible men in the long white robes and, and uh, where whoever they were. Uh, and we will be right back. You're listening to Paranormal Now on KGRARadio.com, your source for alternative paranormal information. We'll be right back. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Are you intrigued by Paranormal Talk Radio? You'll love the new Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live. You'll find a great selection of talk shows covering UFOs, ghosts, strange phenomena, and much more. Download the Paranormal Radio app now and start listening to the very best in Paranormal Talk entertainment, including the network you're listening to right now. The Paranormal Radio app, free in Google Play and the iOS App Store. Now you have the inside contact for alternative talk radio. The Planet. KGRARadio.com And we are back. This is Paranormal Now. Usually you would be listening to Alan B. Smith. Tonight is Carol Carl, that's me, and my incredible guest, Donna, Dennis. <laughs> well, I'll try it again. Dennis Stone of StonehengeUSA.com, giving us literally chapter and verse. Um, before we went to break, we were talking about the possibilities that uh, Alistair Crowley, you know what, the self-proclaimed most evil man in the world, um, visited the area. And, and you found something to clarify that Dennis yes I did Carol yeah I found a uh, I found a chapter in the book um, the book was actually sitting right next to me and it says Crowley visited the United States on three separate occasions including a five-year stay starting in 1914 it is during this extended visit of 1914 to 1919 that Crowley began infrequent trips to Lake Passaquani in New Hampshire for magical retirements Passaquani so can can you spell Passaquani <laughs> I had it wrong yeah yeah, so it's a P A S Q U A N E Y. Okay, dokey. I'll just leave that pronunciation to you, but but nonetheless, yeah. okay. So I may be. Yeah, I don't know if I could trust myself on the pronunciation, but it's <laughs> Newfound Lake today. You know, it's a beautiful place, not too far from Lake Winnipesaukee. Uh, but it says various stories recounted by Crowley and his bi- biographers of these trip include encounters with ball lightning, sacrificial ceremonies involving frogs, and what is referred to as Star sponge vision, in parentheses, whatever that is. So I have I'll leave no it to your imagination. <laughs> well, that ball so, lightning—that's very intriguing. I, I wonder if there's a, yeah. a, a way back in, uh, let's see, um, an ancient, if you will, not not archaeologically ancient, mm. but uh, an ancestor of mine, um, sometime before the revolution. Actually, was in a tavern, and ball lightning came down a chimney, hit him in the head, and he never recovered. Ultimately, died uh, several months later. Uh, my mother also witnessed ball lightning several times in in her life, and so you know there was always the gee, is there some genetic component? I have never seen ball lightning, but I'm wondering if there was a you know a geolocation um, connection there to the ball lightning. 
Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, our site is on a you know fault line, and they say there's uh, earthquake uh, light. You know. Um, yes. Right. Lights, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. So, but um, it does, one other thing it says, yeah, during one of his, uh, he had a diary, I guess, and he wrote on June 23rd, 1916, he was in Bristol, New Hampshire, and that's right by Lake uh, Newfound Lake, and that's probably about 60 miles north of here, basically. Mm. And uh, so he could have come down here on the train. The train, you know, he could have made it by here on the train and visited the place or on, a, I suppose, a wagon or whatever. Or they had automobiles back then, too, so he could have done that. Yes, right. Uh, but um, uh, as far as H.P. Lovecraft, it looks like he was here in July of 1928 with uh, H. Warner Munn of, uh, of right. Providence, Rhode Island. <laughs> yeah. So yes, Providence. Oh, that's fascinating. Thank you for that, because that's uh, that, that it's all again, these overlaps, the, the richness of these possibilities. Mm. And uh, and and oh, my mm. gosh, what fodder for conjecture and imagination. <laughs> it's the, it's the uh, proper place for all the weird and mysterious stuff, for sure. And it, it is. Uh, I'll pull that all the time. <laughs> That's just incredible. And, and who knows what else you will uh, you will stumble upon or or dig up, should we say? Yeah. Um, literally. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, so now, okay. So let's see if I can get this correct. Um, mm. Probably won't. So, so just you know, toss stuff in. Um, your father. Um, bought the property from, would it be from William Goodwin or, or was it later on? It's a, a Goodwin. Okay. And he was an insurance executive. Yes. That's right. Yeah. So Goodwin now uh, was an insurance millionaire. Um, he was from Hartford, Connecticut, and he uh, did spend time in Kansas city uh, working for a bank, went out to the West on, in uh, Washington uh, state. He was in Seattle and he worked for two different companies and then he, he was already pretty well-to-do, and he actually took a little time off uh, after he uh, was involved with insurance out there. He actually set up the office to run without him, I guess, himself for a while. It ran so well. He went up to the Yukon and, you know, did some gold, uh, looked for gold up there for a oh while. Oh, my, the wow. That, right? <laughs> so, but then he came back. The office was running good, and then they promoted him and moved him to San Francisco and, and eventually moved back to New England. And uh, But before that, actually, I missed something. He went to Ohio for 15 years. <laughs> and when he was in Ohio as an insurance uh, millionaire, uh, insurance executive, mm-hmm. he uh, actually was out looking at some of the mounds there. And Ohio has about 10,000 uh-huh. ancient mounds. That's where my actually... imagination took me. So indeed. And so um, yeah. and, and joining yeah. us at the top of the next hour uh, mm-hmm. will be Charles Smar, who happens to live, as I, if I've got it right, in the state of Ohio. Um, we can get his oh, wow. input on that. Um, yeah. So yeah. so the mounds. Yeah. So that now then, of course, now. OK, my brain says that it was the interest in the mounds that led him to uh, the site where you are. That's right. Yeah. Kind of in an indirect way. He had actually, uh, when he moved back to New England after being in Ohio and he was out on, like I mentioned on weekends, you know, mapping some of these mounds for the state of Ohio, the Department of Transportation. So they knew where these things were. Um, when he came back to New England again, he um, bought an axe and it was a uh, Viking axe, I guess, you know, because he was interested in, you know, old stuff, you know, and ancient stuff. And um, this axe, he got in contact with an old friend from uh, Seattle, Washington. Uh, his name was Olaf Stranwell. And this gentleman was just writing a book about uh, Viking runes, you know, the, the ancient writing of the, yes, the Vikings. Yes, right. And he actually visited him back. I guess he traveled back out there and visited him. And, uh, and then all, uh, this guy says, hey, you know, there's some stone, stone structures in New England. And it wasn't our site he was referring to. It was the site of Malcolm Pearson as a chamber called the Upton Chamber. And it looks like a gigantic igloo all made out of stone. It's kind of like a passage grave you find in Europe. 
And hmm. it's up, up in Massachusetts. And today it's a park. They actually turned it into a park and they preserved it. But Malcolm's family bought it about 100 years ago when Malcolm was 16 years old and said, a young man is an old cellar hole out back. It wasn't a cellar hole. It was, this, you know, this kind of uh-huh. a four-bell dome-shaped structure with right. a big, you know, entrance. And it didn't look like something a New England farmer would build at all. And um, we don't think it is. Um, and that got Malcolm's interest back in the 1920s. And um, when Goodwin finally connected with him, um, he came up from Hartford. He visited that chamber. They took him to one other chamber in uh, Hoppington, which is where the Boston Marathon starts, Hoppington, Massachusetts, because ah. <clears throat> the marathon wasn't run two days ago because of the uh, yesterday, because yes. it was supposed to be yesterday, actually. Ah. But um, that's where it starts. There's a chamber there, you know, and he took him to see that. And then the Upton chamber. And then he says, hey, there's a, a complex of structures up in Salem, New Hampshire. You know, you got to see it. Mm. And I believe it was a week later, they all traveled up uh, to see the site and Goodwin just was totally blown away by it. Um, he bought it 20 acres the next year. <clears throat> and he um, worked in the site from 1937 to about the time he died, 1950. And when he died, he willed it to Malcolm Pearson, which was very nice because Malcolm was um, really helping him out on it. He was a professional oh. photographer too. So we have photographs going back to the day one when, when Goodwin first began working on the site. And, um, and then my dad, when he first heard about it, you know, in 1955, he eventually met Malcolm and then uh, he opened it up three years later to the public. So it was Malcolm that my dad met. Not, you know, Goodwin had died uh, five years before my dad ever I even see, heard about this I site. see. <clears throat> what, what led your father in this direction? Well, just like we're doing right now, it's a radio show. And um, Oh, my God. I was just going through. Yeah, it was pretty cool because I was just going through <laughs> my dad's really extensive files. He's got, we have, you know, almost 100 years of archives and I'm going through all of this stuff well before my dad got into it, you know, original letters by Goodwin and people before Goodwin about this site. And um, I came across um, the actual gentleman, my, that was a radio show, uh, talk show host was Alton Hall Blackington. And he had a show called Yankee Yarns. It was on um, one of the biggest radio stations in Boston, but it was also in radio stations all over New England, syndicated kind of. Oh and, my. Um, on, and I just, I found this, and it was 1949, six years before my dad heard that radio show, that he actually had it on twice that year, which I did not know until two days ago. Oh, I thought my. 1955 was the original airing of it, but it was 1949. They had the whole thing where he's actually asking, uh, I believe it was Malcolm, because he hadn't heard from Goodwin. He was wondering what's going on with Goodwin, I guess. Goodwin was very sick at the time. He was, he was going to pass the next year, so mm. he was very, very sick. He couldn't respond. So he wanted to know if he could not only do a show about it again, the second one, because his listeners really wanted to know more about this site, yes. but if they could actually come up and visit the site, you know, actually physically see the site. So that was the letter. And I got a, a nice picture of it. I got it. I got it all saved and all archived. Now I never saw that before. So uh, he oh, actually that, was on uh, NBC. He, NBC. That was on NBC. Okay. NBC that, too. Yeah. On NBC TV, actually with the Yankee Yons. I don't know if it was, just in the New England area or whether it was national. I haven't been able to find that out yet. So Oh, but, what a search that will be. That that is that's extremely yeah. thrilling. That that that's really and yeah. I had no idea. Wow. Okay. That's that's knocking my <laughs> socks off. Here I stand without socks. Um, but wow. So you know, I mean, are are you going to put this all into a book? Uh, yes, I am. We are. In fact, I'm going to add that to the book. I've been uh, working on a book for about two years, and I would say probably about 80% done now. And um, But the problem I realize is I'm going through my dad's stuff even more now that we're all stuck in. Mm-hmm. I'm doing a lot more of that. I may have to back off. I was going to try to have it out this summer. I may have to put it out this fall because there's just so many interesting things that I could add to it that would be so pertinent. 
you know, I have original letter from Malcolm Pearson to Goodwin in 1936 before he ever visited the site, the actual letter. Huh. I didn't know I had that either. You know, I just oh, found that yesterday. Oh. Wow, that, so this is incredible. Yeah, and and, and I, another overlap is that my parents uh, were in radio. Um, my father would have oh. been in radio in 1949 and then uh, moved into television as wow. a news broadcaster. Uh, it was way before the... Um, it was before they had the teleprompters, and my dad liked to deliver the news into the camera, Walt Carl and uh, KTTV, KMPC, and uh, so he would memorize the news so that he didn't have to be wow. looking down at copy. Yeah, yeah. So, so wow, this is a... Fascinating overlap. I'm I'm just absolutely tickled. Um, this is incredible. And again, you're you're going to have to, um, you know, sl- slow the roll on your book so that you can include include all this uh, amazing new stuff you've stumbled upon. Wow. Yeah, yeah, a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah, that my dad saved everything. Thankfully, uh, you know, he never threw anything away as far as paperwork goes. So yeah. Yes. I'm sure we're going to find more things too. Yeah, I got actually original letters from Delzimir Stephenson. He was the, uh, at Dartmouth College. He was one of the gentlemen in the 1950s that was interested. And I found a handwritten letter by him. I didn't know he had either. And I think the Attic Center up at Dartmouth College is still named after him. He died in 1963. And he was a member of the Early Sites Foundation that was formed in 1954 with Malcolm Pearson and wow. uh, several other members. Hugh Morrison from Dartmouth College, and there was Frank Glenn, president of the Connecticut Archaeological Society. Mm. By 63, a number of these people died, and so the, the organization folded, and that's when my dad's group, NERA, in 1964 took over. But that group was actually involved with the very first Viking settlement in Lonzo Meadow up in, up in Newfoundland. And um, it was one of the members' boys. So this group had some money. They sent one of the members up with a son, and the son was actually helping out on the dig, I guess. And the National Geographic was there. Really? Anna um, and Helga Instat, the husband and wife team that actually located that settlement, you know, because people said there's something strange over there. And they went and they spent a number of seasons working on it. And that and, and when this early sites member and the son were there, they actually found the world, the world to spin wool. And the son found that the stone world and they oh, identified my. it as a Viking artifact. So although I don't think he gets a lot of credit, maybe he does in the paperwork, but, you know, um, he really deserves credit. And it was the Early Sites Foundation, and it was that group was formed because of America's Stonehenge. Um, so so there's a little legacy to that, too. In 1960s, when that happened, they actually proved the Vikings, you know, made it to the New World. 1959, we could have an argument like the Viking sagas are fantasy. They're myths, yes, they're not yes, legends. right. But, or, or the other way, you know, but, but right, they did right. prove it, you know, and that, that was one of the groups that was there helping out. And that is an imagine an, an unimaginable thing. Um, a lot of people, and I'm thinking of the controversy that must have inspired. Oh yeah, oh yeah, a lot, absolutely, yeah. Even some today, you know, on that. Right. But uh, they've been proven it, you know. And now, I guess the controversy today is how long are the Vikings coming over for? And I saw our PBS live streaming uh, two years ago. And they used the Worldview 3 satellite that went up in 2014, and they've been finding more pyramids in Egypt and Guatemalan temples, and they found yes, that right. second Viking settlement called Point Rosie, 400 miles southwest of uh, uh, Lonzo Meadow, and they believe it was a boat repair station, I believe. And the, what really struck me at the end of the PBS special was they think the Vikings were coming over, and at that time they were no longer Vikings; they were Christianized, you know, and they were still they were called Greenlanders ah, by then. Oh, I and see. They were coming yeah, and so they may have been coming into Canada and maybe into the uh, United States, too, because they think they were going from um, Greenland to the New World for about 400 years. When I grew up, I heard one year with Leif Erikson, and then I heard maybe 25 years. And right. that was like 
400, four centuries possibly coming into the new world. That's amazing. That was kind of shocking to me when I was watching that. You know, I, That's I expect- a hell of a long time indeed, and, is, and uh, with is. a lot of implications of, of uh, influence and mm. culture. And, and mm. now, um, yeah. would I be mm. wrong to say that we are kind of uh, in, in a time span, a geolocation, are we talking Oak Island here at all? Mm, let's see. Yeah, I think, well, Oak Island might be a little bit after that, possibly, I think, a little bit later on the timing on that. Okay. I think the Viking era would have ended when the Little Ice Age uh, started occurring in the 14th century, and a bishop goes up to Greenland to get the tithe, I guess. And they have the name of the person and everything. And he, and what he reports is that uh, the people are gone. They don't find mass bodies laying on the ground. Like, you know, I think there were 5,000 people there. They wow. do find the normal burials and everything. But what happened is it got so cold because of the Little Ice Age, the animals weren't reproducing and the crops weren't growing, whatever they were using, you know, for crops there. Yes. And um, they had to leave. And they don't go to Iceland, which is actually a little milder place. And they don't go back to Europe. They seem to have disappeared. I thought so that they came back into the into Canada and the United States because they knew it was warmer there, you know, and they, they, they left Greenland, you know. Um, and then mm. Oak Island, I think, would take place uh, – um, trying to think it might be a hundred and something years after that probably 150 years later maybe okay um, no, so I, i'm all fuzzy on that so I, yeah okay maybe yeah i'm a little fuzzy too it might be 200 <laughs> years later than that maybe it's 200 years yeah but it is in the time of the sir henry sinclair time period and there's a place called spirit pond in maine it's where george pompum uh had a settlement the same year as uh, jamestown jamestown stayed and it was successful but the one in maine it was so cold that it wasn't successful. So after one season, that particular settlement was abandoned. But when they were digging, um, I should say 1971, some three stones were found there. One they called a map stone and then two other stones were writing. They believed they were rune stones. Ah. And when they, my dad dug on the site the next year in 72 and 73 in, in Spirit Pond, they found what looked like sod houses near where the three stones were found. And um, they did find, yeah, and they did find some uh, last, I guess it was the last quarter, 1800s artifacts. So somebody was there at that time for sure. But they also got carbon datings, uh, clay pipes, and I think what the other artifact is that could put it back to an earlier time period. But the radiocarbon dating of one of the beams, and it must have been a ceiling beam because you had sod walls and then you had a roof made out of wood with timbers. And one of the timbers was carbon dated to 1405 A.D., and mm. I remember back then people were disappointed because if you're thinking Viking, you're thinking 1,000 years ago, uh, 1,400, what is that? But if that's true that the Viking descendants were coming over for the next 400 years, it might be one of their people, you know, a Viking descendant, you know, a Greenlander. Exactly, place, right, know? right. So it really, actually, to me, that's pretty exciting, you know, that time period. That's And Saint, Sir Henry Sinclair could have been there in 1398, so it puts it in that same era and he had one quarter of his blood was Norwegian from his mother, I guess. So he had, he had some Viking blood in him. He had uh, Scottish blood and he had French blood, you know, and, and he was in the Orkney Islands, you know. Up yes, in right. Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, so, that, that's just I, that's so intriguing. And when when you actually when when one stops to picture how they would have, you know, what we're talking about wooden ships. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, the Irish would have had the hide cover boats, you know, those, uh, what they call them, the Korags, or Kuraks, I guess they call them, the hide cover. Yes, you know, yes, they, right. Uh, yeah, and, that, and actually Tim Severn back in 1976 and 77, over the course of that those two years, he, he sailed across the Atlantic Ocean on a replica of an of a Irish monk hide cover boat. 
trying to replicate St. Brendan the Navigator, who may have come over in the 6th century AD, another Irish, really early. He might have been the leader of the Irish coming over, you know, St. Brendan's Navig, you know, they call it the Navigation right. of St. Brendan. Now, am, I co- thing am I correct in, in con- connecting that then to um, this uh, William Goodwin's having, uh, being convinced that the location uh, in the area was proof that the Irish monks, the monks, the Chaldees had lived there? Would that be the connection? Exactly. Ah, okay. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. He, yeah, that's in his book too. Exactly. Good, great point you brought up because that was part of that. You know, it's been known for years, and, and even in Goodwin's time, eighty years ago, they were talking about that. You know, probably more talking about it more back then, maybe. You know, because people mm. didn't have TVs and all the distractions we have today. <laughs> but you know, that's a great point. It would have been probably St. Brendan would, would have been one of the earlier Irish monks if that happened. You know, you know, it's one of these things. Um, is it? It, can we ever prove that, you know, um, with conclusive evidence? I don't know. But um, it's like the Viking thing. If we could just find something solid, you know, and they can say, okay, then that's for sure. He did make it over. But it's the same kind of narrative, too. It sounds like St. Brennan not only describes Turk, so he might have gone around in a complete loop ending down in the Caribbean and then making his way up the eastern seaboard and then past uh, Iceland because he talks about fire under the water. That would be submarine volcanoes. He talks about crystal uh-huh. mountains, which would be icebergs. But right. down in the south, he talks about turquoise waters. He talks about um, the type of plants and type of birds. And he also talks about the sun being very high overhead. Well, that would be, you know, a southern latitude, you know. Yes. And then it all makes sense. It really makes a lot of sense when you read it. This thing's embellished in there. But if you look at, just try to pick out all the different things like, you know, like the turquoise waters, the height of the sun overhead, the warmth, you know, and all these. It sounds like this guy actually was on a voyage that did a whole loop and he went around, ended up down in the Caribbean and then up the eastern seaboard and then back to back to Europe. It sounds just like what you would do. Uh, and you may not have the technical words, but you put it in the words that you could use, you know, what your yes. vocabulary had in it to describe like a crystal mountain, I, probably an iceberg, you know. Exactly. Sure. How you know, especially with the sun glinting on it, uh, ice would look like crystal. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so you're right. So that that's what's inspired uh, William Goodwin, and um, we don't think he was completely wrong because there's still a lot of um, thought that the Irish monks did make it to the to the New World. You know, so he may have been off um, at our site, for instance, but there may be some other sites that may have been built more recently. That may have um, something to do with his his theory, you know, the Irish monks uh, arriving in the New World. Exactly, and and so um, I get a part of me just to to, to you know um, round up the uh, <laughs> to lasso the Irish monks, as it were. When then and then what happened? And where where did they go? What how did that work? If they, they may were have here? Um, intermarried with the Indians. There's so many different legends of uh, when the first official Europeans came over after 1492 of like Verrazano came over, you know, for King Francis the first, he was Italian, but he came over and his brother was a map maker and he came over um, into the uh, outer banks of the Carolinas. And then he makes his way past Chesapeake Bay. He doesn't seem to go in there. And what is goal? I think his goal was to find a Northwest passage, you know, to head up towards the uh, Pacific ocean. Uh-huh. So the Chesapeake, yeah, the Chesapeake Bay didn't really, I guess he didn't spend any time there. He went past the Delaware Bay he goes into the uh, New York Harbor because today the Verrazano Narrows Bridge is there. I used to fly over that all the time going into Kennedy or LaGuardia Airport. You know, that beautiful oh, bridge. Oh, right. Exactly. Yes. Yes. It's huge. And, and then he uh, spends a little time in, a, in the Hudson River area. And then he ends up going along Long Island Sound 
making his way past Connecticut into Rhode Island, and he goes into the Narragansett Bay. And according to the, the narrative that I have, that when he went in there, a Native American met him at his boat, came out on a, a boat, some sort of canoe or whatever, met him. And when he introduced himself, the Native American said his name was Magnus, which sounds like a Scandinavian name. It does <clears throat> so, indeed. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So, so there we go. That, oh, wow. That, yeah, my, these connections are just amazing. Yeah. Well, he describes some of the people as quite much taller than he, much more fair skinned than he. And also some had like green or blue eyes and light colored hair. And other members of the tribe would have more Native American features, you know, a little darker complexion and eyes. Yes, right. So it sounds like a mixed blood. Well, 90 years later, Roger Williams, who founded Rhode Island, um, spent time with the Narragansett. And he said the same thing. This is 90 years after Verrazano, approximately, that the same thing, you know, that they were very welcoming. They were tall. Some of these were very tall. Some were very fair skinned. Some had light colored hair and light colored eyes. And uh, the word Narragansett, some people say, is a corruption of North Gang settlement. So it might be some Norse there, if not the Irish monks, you know, that might oh, have intermarried with the Native sake. Americans. Right. <clears throat> oh, my God. That, that's <clears throat> incredibly intriguing. We, we've got about two minutes uh, until the break. And um, when, uh-huh. we, when we come back, I absolutely want to, um, now, as, I, as I punned before, dig into some of the specifics of what is on your site and what people can see. Um, and, and we're going to bring in Charles Smarr, who has some incredible questions. And, well, actually, he's got the knowledge. He, you know, he's able to ask these questions I can't even begin to pose. Um, and, and in terms of uh, some of the specific of Copper Age, blah, 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 et cetera. And I'd love to have you describe some of what people can see when they visit your site, um, because that sure. that's uh, that's just amazing. So so now that having been said, <laughs> here we are with two extra minutes until that happens. Um, also, um, Charles is going to be putting into the uh, chat room, he's going to be putting a LIDAR image that I got through Mark Eddy. Thank you so much, Mark Eddy. Um, LIDAR, and, and I want to read this thing. This is a good time to do this. Um, In case, and I was not, I had to go to Wikipedia, which is good for certain things. Uh, The definition of LIDAR, uh, which is also L-I capital D-A-R and LADAR, it is a surveying method that measures distance to a target by illuminating the target with laser light and measuring the reflected light with a sensor. Differences in laser return times and wavelengths can then be used to make digital 3D representations of the target. The name LIDAR, now used as an acronym of Light Detection and Ranging, sometimes Light Imaging, Detection and Ranging, was originally a portmanteau of Light and Radar. LIDAR sometimes is called 3D laser scanning, and that's a special combination of a 3D scanner and laser, laser scanning. It has terrestrial, airborne, and mobile applications. So on that note, we still have a little bit of time. Um, how is it pronounced? Is it geodesy or geodesy? I'm not really sure about that word. Um, yeah. But it, but however one pronounces it, it's commonly used, LIDAR is, to make high-resolution maps, uh, geomatics, archaeology, and archaeology, that's kind of where we're going here, uh, forestry, seismology, atmospheric physics, etc. Um, and when we come back, we will be talking about the laser, laser, the LIDAR. See, there we go. It's so easy to slip, you know, when you're not a techno person. But we'll be talking about the LIDAR imaging, and we'll be talking about the specific 
specifics um, with you, Dennis Stone of America's Stonehenge, Stonehenge USA. This is Carol Carl or Alan B. Smith's Paranormal Now here on KGRARadio.com. Your finger on the pulse of everything about Alternative Talk Radio. We'll be right back. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Mainstream media's most wanted. KGRARadio.com And we're back. We told you we would be, and here we are. This is Carol Carl sitting in for Alan B. Smith. No, you haven't lost your mind. Um, it's not a, a factor of the isolation. I am sitting in for Alan B. Smith, Paranormal Now tonight, and my guest is Dennis Stone of Stonehenge USA. Now adding to this incredible conversation is Charles Smarr. That's S-M-A-R-R. And as I have said to Charles previously, he needs to add a T to the end of his name because he is smart in Indeed, you might know him if you're a, f- a familiar to um, KGRA chat room. He is Blue Orb, a moderator in chat, and he has incredible um, insights and and uh, knowledge of stuff where my knowledge fails. Hence, he joins us now. Hello, Charles. Good evening, Carol. And good How evening. Are- Glad to speak, talk to you again, Dennis. So, good evening. Nice to hear you from you. Okay. And- We've done this before, so so I'm I'm going to let you, uh, Charles. You um, you can talk chapter and verse regarding some of this uh, stuff, such as uh, Copper Age finds, etc., and the age of the. So where do you where do you want to start? Well, I guess we'll, we'll let's start at the beginning. Let's go all the way back. The earliest dates that you have for the uh, carbon dating on the site. Uh, where do they where do they go, Dennis? Well, um, on the main site, which is one acre with that fence that Mr. Goodwin put up, uh, goes back to four thousand years, uh, plus or minus about two hundred and fifty years. Uh-huh. But outside of that, near the North Stone, about 
400 feet from the main site back about 1995 they're doing shovel test pit study across the entire hilltop and they found what appeared to be a fire pit and that dated to about 7,400 years plus or minus again about 250 years before present okay. yep and that's so, the earliest evidence we have on the hill right now we have 12 carbon datings by the way those are two of the 12. uh-huh that's that's pretty that's pretty pretty amazing really uh so as far as the actual construction of the site that indicates that it was at least the beginnings of its construction go back uh to 2000 bc uh that's correct yeah and um we do have a professor from penn state dr winkler he passed away in uh, 2001 after working on the site for a few years and he was an Aki astronomer, astronomer from Penn State uh, uh -huh. from 64 up to uh, about 1999 when he retired. And he actually said that there was like three stages of construction similar to Stonehenge, like stage one, two, and three at the site, starting at 2000 years uh, BC, as you mentioned. And uh, he thought that the site probably uh, it evolved, you know, um, and even the astronomy there evolved, you know, from it might have moved from one astronomical center to a different astronomical center. Um, and possibly at 2000 BC, uh, the North Stone and the solstices, the, what we call the quarter days and the cross quarter days uh -huh. stones were set up. Um, and when we surveyed the site from 1973 to 1977 using Beverly Pearson Associates, um, their professional survey company in New Hampshire, and the gentleman that was the head of it was actually the president of New England Surveyors Association, so we got somebody reputable, and it was his son, uh, Beverly was the owner, and his son, Charlie Pearson, who's still alive today, he began surveying the site, and by 1977, we had enough data collected that we sent it to the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Mass., and in 1978, the results came back, and they said that if these marker stones were used for astronomical purposes, they would work approximately 1800 BC plus or minus, I think it said 200 years um, due to the Earth's tilt very slowly changing. Mm -hmm. And one other interesting thing besides the 26 alignments, including the North Star, was there were 23 other star alignments with the site. And Dr. Winkler, during that three and a half year period before he passed away suddenly, was working on those alignments. Um, so that would have been about 13 years after that the report came out that he was working on on that. And he found almost every one of those uh, other 23 alignments. So helical, you know, star, sunrises basically with stars mm -hmm. like Cirrus and, mm. uh, you know, Deneb and a couple of, well, yeah, Taurus, there's a bunch of other ones, Isar, I can't think of all of them off the top of my head. So we think around 2000 BC, the site's construction began, but it wasn't finished then, you know. Um, in fact, you never finished it, actually, from what we can tell. That was that was something that was a question that was going to be my next question. Really, it was going to go back to I, I because when we talked before, I hadn't I had later thought about it. But just what kind of a time span we're talking about with this this building and you're saying it probably was never really completed, that there were uh, mm was a culture or several cultures that used the site mm -hmm. and over and over at least two th around 2000 years of of time right that's exactly. that's pretty yeah, amazing yeah 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 exactly um 
he actually said the first part may have been like, you know, the first phase of it would have been about a 500 year period. And then he puts the next phase or the second phase about one, about 1100 years. And then the last one was about a thousand years period of time. Uh So talking about 25, 2600 years from the beginning. So close to what you said over 2000 years, basically of construction in Stonehenge again, that took over 1500 years, I believe, uh, been Mm -hmm. there a few times. It was like one, two, three and the third stage was ABC. I think it was Mm. similar to Stonehenge though. Yeah. How large, how large, how large are the largest stones on the site? I know you mentioned something about one that was the roof stone that had fallen. That was pretty, Mm -hmm. pretty sizable. Oh yeah. Yeah. Actually the two of them that have fallen and, um, they were kind of next to each other, not too far from the paddy area. One of them may have fallen because the paddies built a house there and probably disturbed it. And uh-huh. that one weighs about about seven or eight tons. The one next to it weighs probably about four to five tons. It's about 163 pounds per cubic foot. So you just do the dimensions of the stone, yeah. you know, and you come up with a pretty close approach. But the heaviest roof slab, though, is actually one that's still in place, and it weighs... 14 tons, it's estimated, so almost 30,000 pounds. Mm. And it was actually came out of the earthquake fault line. So the earth split the stone, and it's about an inch wide today. The fault runs out to the ocean, and it ends uh-huh. up going into Connecticut, down along, I think, past Cape Cod, called the Clinton-Newbury fault line. They actually took advantage of that split, and that became one edge of the stone. It was already done by nature for them. Uh-huh. And they just had to you know, split the stone and bedrock is foliated the granite you know does come up in layers so they were able to work the stone pop it up and then they moved it probably about 15 feet into the structure mm. and it's the only uh-huh. two-story structure that we have on the site it's called the double solar faces true east but it's about a 14 ton stone so but in the uh-huh. oracle chamber the one that we, yeah carol was interested in the oracle chamber and the sacrificial table there is a <laughs> glacial erratic that's split and i think it probably split naturally and um, uh-huh. today it's about four feet. Each stone is about four feet from the other. And it looks like they moved the smaller piece, which is estimated to be around 50 tons. So almost 100,000 pounds. Wow. Wow. Mm. Uh, mm. So the, the, the possibilities that the uh, six strong sons moved all these stones <laughs> yeah. around in a couple or, or, of years. Or very strong daughters. It's kind yes, of right. put to the side for right yeah. now, I would yep. think. Yeah. Uh, they must have been particularly <laughs> robust young individuals. Yes. Um, right, right. Or how about this? The, the daughters the, used witchcraft. Well, no, no, no. Let's, let's not hijack it there. Yeah, anything, okay. Anything. Right. <laughs> right. Um, I, it, just, it just amazes me. <laughs> That there's so much evidence that's been overlooked that there were other cultures, other visit- visitors that came to the Americas. And it's it's not just in, in your place, that seems to be a particular fulcrum, but uh, there's so many, so many different places that, that have these unusual, unexplainable artifacts. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. There's there's another stonework somewhere in New in New England that I can't think of. That's like an octagonal tower. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of that? Oh, the, maybe the Newport Tower. Newport. In, uh, that's Island. it. Yes, that's yes. it. I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't yeah. bring it to mind. 
Yes. Yes, in, in Rhode yeah. Island. Yep. And it's also yep. similar stone structure, uh, uncut. It's, um, it, yeah, it actually has uh, a cement to it. It doesn't look like a windmill. And uh, mm-hmm. Governor Arnold, you know, Benedict Arnold said it was his stone tower. He was related to the the, to the famous, you know, Benedict Arnold, but, right. but you know, it was his nephew. But um, it said it's a stone tower, but it wouldn't, it has a, has a uh, chimney on the second floor for one thing. And if you lit a fire while you're grinding stuff, the whole thing would blow up and has these mm. windows that align with the winter solstice, for instance, and it illuminates the stone that's shaped like an egg in the arch, you know, on nine o'clock in the morning on the winter solstice, it illuminates it beautifully. Uh-huh. And um, it does have eight legs and uh, uh-huh. it might've had a, um, had a, had a uh, what do they call it? It's around the base of it. Um, I'm trying to think of the name of it, but it actually had a skirted building around the bottom of it. They believe at one time too. Uh-huh. And, but I think the cement dated to around the 14th century also. They were able to get the shell. You know, shell was organic. They could actually date it in the, in the concrete. Right. And um, I got the whole report on that. But that puts it back again to the end of the Viking or the Greenlander exactly. time period. It's still Saint. definitely pre-Columbian. <laughs> That's what we're interested in exactly. Anything before 1492. Uh, yeah. The other thing Absolutely. about that, or, and, and it's a different, it, it's definitely the structure in that it uses a true arch is of a different mm. kind of architecture, a later kind of architecture, mm. because yeah. you don't have yeah. that at your site. Right. Good point. Good point. We have the core billing, you know, the inverted mm-hmm. staircase. I think Carol and I talked about that before. Yes, with yes definitely. Eddie. Yeah. Yeah. Like an upside, Let, uh, upside let, down staircase. Yeah, absolutely. Let, let's flesh that out. Um, mm-hmm. Let's take those steps up that upside down Escher kind of staircase um, and explain that for, for mm-hmm. our listeners. I will yeah. put up a picture. Yeah. Oh, great. Excellent. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Charles, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can hold a picture up and show everybody. Um, <laughs> but it does look like it does look like an inverted staircase. It's a way of bridging a ceiling, you know, and mm-hmm. each layer that you put up is a little bit further towards the center of the, the structure, you know. And so it does look like a staircase upside down, uh, not a true arch. And if you have the beehives, like in Ireland, for instance, pretty famous ones, you can see that kind of a corbelling shape, almost like an igloo, a dome shape. Mm-hmm. Um, and other cultures use that, too. And that's found in our oracle chamber on the east wing. The oracle chamber, if you look down at it and the roof was removed, <clears throat> you'd see it look like a letter Y. We used to call it the Y cabin, like the letter Y. And the east side, it has the corbelling in it. But when you first walk into it, it's all vertical stacked stones, big, huge slabs of stones just stood up vertically with flat roof slabs. But you turn right and you go down to that other wing and it's all corbelled. And Mr. Goodwin saw that everywhere, that corbelling everywhere, because that's one thing the Irish monks would do, too. So he mm-hmm. kind of when they drew out the site, we have many really well sketched, uh, um, you know, sketches of the site made in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. We used to kind of joke that everything he saw here had a had kind of that corbelling in it, you know, like a beehive shape. And we said that he was just, he was seeing things. But when we get into the chamber with the roof slab, one of them that collapsed, we were looking at it four years ago and we're looking at three of the corners because the doorway corner, there was really no corner. The door goes against one of the walls, but the other three walls have corners. I should say the other, the other three corners of uh-huh. the structure. Uh, our core belt, actually, and we looked at that and said, gosh, it's very subtle, but that's core building. And then we went into a chamber called the Patty Chamber, and it's in the Patty cellar hole, but it wasn't made by Patty. It's where the house was. He just utilized the structure. If you look at three of those walls, because it's very similar to the other structure, um, they're core belled, too. They had a very subtle core building. And even the uh, watch house has that core building in it, too. So 
Yeah, we do. We don't have the Chuach, but we do have core billing at our site, and that is similar to sites in England and throughout the British Isles. And most people think of the Irish monks and that, and they do have that in their architecture, but it's elsewhere too. So uh, we do have that core billing there. You also gave us a picture of uh, an abandoned stone. Now that is one that's off-site, or not, or, or mm-hmm. kind of off-site that doesn't seem to be associated with anything. Is that the stone? stone? How how large is that okay. one? Is, oh, I don't know if Carol has a picture too. Is it the one that's kind of a big slab that's propped up with another stone, a small stone under it? I perhaps? think so, yes. yes, yes. Okay. Well, in 19, um, 1982, Dr. David Stuart Smith, who arrived back from England after working on British megalithic sites and, uh, and medieval sites, he got a doctorate in historical theology. Uh, I'm sorry, historical anthropology. He got a doctorate in theology, and he was a master stonemason and a 32nd degree York rights mason. He's from Connecticut originally. He went to Europe, and he worked for the British government doing this restorations and getting an education. Came back in 78, and he was amazed that these New England sites existed. And it's actually more than New England. The sites, you know, covering most of the Northeast. And he got involved with our site. And by 82. He was telling our staff, you know, you might want to look if you're out in the woods, if you see some stones out there that look like they're big flat slabs that might be raised up, perhaps the edge might look serrated like somebody had taken a stone and struck it. It was like the edge of a like an arrowhead kind of that little serration, you know. And so one of our staff members um, in 1982 was sitting on a stone. That's the story I was hoping you would tell. Yes, yes. She had decided (laughs) to just go have her lunch there. Right. Exactly. And it was at that time, it was pretty much just out in the woods. Since then, we cleared it out so you can see it better. Yeah, she was just having her lunch, you know, just enjoying herself. And as she was sitting there having her sandwich and having a drink, I guess, she looked down and she noticed the edge of the stone. It, I guess it must have come to her that, wow, this looks like it's got a serrated edge on it. Huh. <laughs> and then she got off the stone because it was kind of elevated a little bit. And she looked back and there's a lot of leaves and debris. It was kind of hard to see. But I think she peered under and said, this stone has actually been propped up. And I think she could see the propping stone, you know, among all the debris in there. And she brought it to the attention of to David Stewart Smith. And the next year, and Dave, when he saw it, he was, was thanked her, you know, and we were all like, wow, that's pretty cool. Right. Uh, the next year, he decided to do an excavation along that edge to see if he could recover any of the little stone flakes that would have been chipped off of it mm. just to verify that, in oh, fact, that's what it was. Right. And, and he also got the, um, he got Dr. Uh, Gary Hume, who is a state archaeologist. I guess most states have a state archaeologist and you know professional. And Dr. Gary Hume um, got interested, and he kind of oversaw the thing, uh, Dave's excavation and everything. He was there as a witness, and you know he came down and checked on it and everything. And uh, what he said after it was done is is unmistakable. That these this big slab was shaped like it's a multi-ton arrowhead. It was percussion flaking. It's like napping an arrowhead. It's a Stone Age technology. It's not a Metal Age technology. Right. So it would lead some, evi- you know, some evidence that this is something in ancient times that was being done, not something by the Patty family or somebody after or just before the Patties. Since then, we found more of these. In the 80s, we probably had about five or six of these, and they vary in size from maybe a few feet across up to that one was probably about 13 feet long by maybe about five or six feet you know, wide and maybe uh, about seven or eight inches thick. But we have found even bigger ones. And when I retired, I found another probably 15 out in the woods and other people helped me to find these. So we have 34, I believe, today. And 
just recently in the last year or so, we started thinking, wow, wait a minute, 34 of these things, not one or two. We think that they had a much grander plan for this place and they abandoned it. Uh, for many years, we thought maybe the site was built. It could have been abandoned and reused. And, you know, and then the patties came along and part of it was destroyed by the patty family being there. Mm-hmm. But we think uh-huh. they had a bigger plan for it. And then the questions came up, well, what happened? Why was this work in progress stopped? You know, did these people, was it something to do with climate change? Was it war? Was it something else? Uh, one theory is that at the end of the Bronze Age, you know, the market fell on bronze when the Iron Age came. And if people were bringing copper back from this continent to the old world kind of thing, you know, maybe that Mm -hmm. trade, you know, they had their, like, they had their depression, I guess, in the, in the bronze age and the copper trade and tin trade too, you know, you mix copper and tin together, you get bronze. So that might've been it. Or maybe, you know, there was the Carthaginian wars. And if these people were, you know, part of the Phoenician thing, when Rome conquered Carthage, maybe that also was an effect, you know, something over there that affected over here. So we don't know, but there's some possibilities, you know. So I think they had a bigger plan for the site, though. Some of these stones were multi-ton, over a thousand feet from the main site, and down the hill. So they were apparently going to drag these multi-ton stones up the hill and then build the site bigger, you know, from what we can tell. <clears throat> That's amazing. Uh, the other thing there is, at that time, you know, at the the end of the Bronze Age, the, there was just there were several civilizations that collapsed in that economic mm. turmoil really um, mm. you know some people think it had something to do with the introduction of iron you know that killed mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. market uh, and there there are any other different uh, theories but nobody seems to have a, a total grip on it but another thing that right. they don't right. seem to have a total grip on is where all that copper that they used in the in the Middle East, in in Egypt, where did all that copper come from? I mean, there was there was mm. plenty of copper in Cyprus, which mm-hmm. basically Cyprus has its the name is copper, and yeah. mm-hmm. there are other sites, but still, then again, then we found that there's. What is that? I think estimates have gone up to half a million tons of copper mm. that are missing from the uh, metallic copper mines in uh, Wisconsin on right, lakes, on the shores of Lake, Lake Superior. Superior. Yes, right. Yes. Isle Royale. Yeah, 500,000 tons, I believe. Yeah, half a million tons. Yeah. And New England, very, very New England would have been a, a nice stopping off point. Mm. On that voyage, yes. yeah. going back across, taking yeah. you know, mm-hmm. advantage of uh, winds and currents. Exactly. So, you know, it, it it makes a certain amount of sense that there would be a uh, like a depot, maybe, or a you know a, a last final stopping off point before they started their uh, transatlantic voyage hmm yeah yeah that's that sounds uh, i've heard that that's a theory that's going around that sounds really very very interesting mm-hmm. and even poverty point down in louisiana going down the mississippi would be also a possible point on exactly. the way to the old back to the old world too you know that way or through our area you know so because uh, yep. the rivers have changed their courses up here and they're, they're 
how deep they are and their actual some of their you know the route that the river takes have changed too over the thousands of years too so mm-hmm. we're you know we're next to the Merrimack River you know we're only a couple miles from that and the Spicket River tributary goes right by our site but yeah the copper thing you know and then when the Iron Age happened like you say I think it caused a lot of up, uh, upheaval you know and maybe mm-hmm. it cut off some of the back and forth across the ocean that's kind of an interesting theory because they had a lot I think you're going to do here and then something happened to these people, you know, and it just stopped. And I think we're going to find more of these stones too, using LIDAR and some of the other technologies, you know? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Well, the, mm. the, the main thing is now we're looking, people are looking, people are taking, uh, yeah. taking yeah. an interest in these things where before they yeah. were just uh, poo pooed completely and given that that couldn't possibly be because it just isn't you know? right and, and, and a lot it, of those also it doesn't al- political uh, rather than scientific it, it didn't align with the history books yep there we go exactly. yeah 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 the, and that, history that's books a, are full of myth you know yeah. a lot of myth in the history books <laughs> instead of uh facts and stuff you know Exactly. And, uh, you know, uh, then again, define myth, you know, and it depends on, uh, Mm. I don't know, are Mm. we talking socioeconomic, political, what what, what is the, you know, who who makes those calls, who makes the decision? And and of course, um, Houghton Mifflin, I mean, you have to rewrite (laughs) a lot of stuff. And uh, what do you include? What do you exclude? Um, It seems to be sort of Mm. polarized. Um, it seems to, you know, I don't want to get conspiracy theorist, but, you know, like, is there an agenda in, uh, you know, I guess this would fall into what we're talking about, uh, you know, it falls into this um, forbidden archaeology, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, hidden history and forbidden, yes. Yep, hidden yeah. history, right. Yeah. Could go back to uh, John Wesley Powell, you know, the Powell Doctrine, you know, if you find an old world artifact, pre-Columbian, you're supposed to disavow it, you know, ignore it, you know. And that goes mm-hmm. back to when he was at the Smithsonian, you know. So yeah. the Powell Doctrine might have been kind of at the beginning of that, maybe, you know. I wonder, what do you think that turned on, the Powell Doctrine, and, and why it became popular? Jeez, that's a great question. Uh, it could be, um, because he was ahead of the Smithsonian and had a lot of pull. Yes. And it seems like ever since then, you know, it went from uh, – Diffusion where the oceans may have been used as highways, you know, people could have been crossing like the Vikings before Columbus and perhaps others to America. All the Americas are kind of a test tube. And then they wanted to see how uh, the cultures over here evolved independently from the rest of the world. And in order to make that work, you have to have 1492 is the time that contact was made and everything changed, you know. So that was part of it, I think. I've read that and I don't know how much of that is, you know, true. But if you start having Vikings and other people coming over, it kind of messes that all up. So Columbus is great, you know, 1492. And that's yep. when, you know. Failed the, the ocean the blue. <laughs> it even rhymes. Blue. Okay, right. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah. So, uh-huh. um, but I don't know. It's It's been like that for since the late 1800s, you know, and people yes. kind of went. Samuel Samuel Elliott Morrison, the great naval historian from Harvard University, wrote Admiral of the Ocean Sea and European Discovery of America. And he basically coined a thing called NEPCO, No Explorers Before Columbus, NEPCO. Whoa. And, um, no Explorers good Before Columbus. Oh, that yeah. that's incredible. That is new to me. Thank kind of, you for that. Wow. Yeah. So that kind of sets a tone, too, you know. And he died in 1976, 16 years after 
the Viking settlement was found. So he did kind of allow that, well, maybe somebody came over, but it was inconsequential. It was not important. It didn't have any influence. It's, you know, really not worth talking about, you know, it's like, really? Well, then your theory's <laughs> wrong because somebody did come over. The Native Americans are already here, but yeah, somebody else came over called the Vikings, you know, and right. maybe they were coming for 400 years now, but I think there are other people using the ocean coming across the Pacific in the Atlantic from, uh, you know, from different parts of the world to the New World, you know. Um, the Cherokees say their ancestors came across from the uh, uh, from the east, from the rising sun in the Cherokee tradition, from what I understand. I didn't you know? know that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And some have been on some of the history channels talking about that, their oral tradition. Mm-hmm. And uh, archaeologists don't necessarily pay attention to oral tradition, which is kind of, I think, a little disrespectful. I mean, they should, you know, they should... <laughs> Listen to some of that because that's well, exactly. Just because you have no, you know, just because you're not the Groveners, you know, of of Smithsonian Institution, right? Yeah, you're okay. Uh, So, right, uh, and that that's um, wow. So again, oh, once again, I think something that we talked about in previous conversation. was the fact that in order to um, <laughs> in order to get things to go in the popular mode by someone's agenda, you have to discredit uh, you have to discredit a culture, or you can't run roughshod. You can't uh, make it. You can't mm. mold it. Yeah. You have to take the yeah. pins out from under it, and uh, yeah, yeah, or or you have to acknowledge it. And and that's something that seems to be a difficult thing for um, you know Europeans, Americans to do. Mm. Mhm. Exactly. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, yikes is is all I can say. So, all right. Well, okay. So, Charles, do you, do you did I hijack you, Charles, from where you wanted no, to go? No. No. Okay. No. No. Please. Okay. Because uh, uh, let's let's hear the story about the night in the chamber. Oh yes, I really please. Find that please. Very, I find that, that very is, entertaining. It is incredible. It's like you can't make this stuff up. So um so um take it away. The night in the it was was it the Oracle Chamber? Well yeah uh, yeah we were kids you know we didn't know any <laughs> better so uh, and we were guides I think it was 1972 and uh, just getting out of high school and everything and. Um, back then we used to have a lot of guides, you know, cause we had uh, people up there and taking guided tours and everything. So we used to have a lot of, a lot of staff, you know, more than we have today. Um, today I think we have just the right amount of staff, but so we had a lot of us working there as friends and everything. So we decided, and there was electricity up there at the time. We had actually electric power up on the site and, uh, we brought a TV up there <laughs> and we were going to spend the night there too. So, uh, but anyway, we, uh, we brought a TV, a black and white little TV, put it on the t- top of the sacrificial table. <laughs> and we all, I think about 10 of us, we watched the uh, Planet of the Apes, uh, which is, is pretty cool, you know. At is night. that not perfect at night in this place? I mean, that that is just like okay. If I if I was doing this, you know, I mean, that's so cinematic, okay. And so uh, the film would sort of go begin there, and then everything else would be backstory. It's just, uh, I mean, that absolutely is so intriguing. And now, can you describe um, this this chamber for us? Uh, to you know, um, we, okay, the sacrificial uh, table on which you set up this little black and white TV. I love it. Um, <laughs> so, so like, what's the size of that sacrificial table? Well, it's very large, yeah. It's actually shaped like a bell, kind of a bell shape. And it's about nine feet long and about uh, six feet wide, about a foot thick. Mm-hmm. And it weighs about 9,000 pounds, so four and a half tons. So it's a really mm-hmm. big stone. And we do know it's quarry site. It, it was actually quarried out of the bedrock about 40 feet to the north of where it is presently. 
and that is where the astronomical center was set up. So apparently they they may have had an earlier astronomical center out at this what we call the Equinox Boulder, ah. uh, and a, mm-hmm. that's about 200 feet from the site. And we have maps drawn from that, and some of the alignments work very nicely off that. You know, you could say coincidence or not, mm-hmm. but it looks like they moved the astronomical center to where the sacrificial table was quarried from, and they put two big piles of rocks there called cairns. And this is the north and south, and they're in Goodwin's book, and he thought that they were connected to the oracle chamber, and they were beehive chambers, but they were solid cairns, just solid piles of rocks. And it wasn't until the survey work began in the 1970s that we actually uh, determined that that was the astronomical center. But unfortunately, Mr. Goodwin, 80 years ago in the late 1930s, when he found they were not connected to the oracle chamber and they were not beehive chambers, you know, hollow inside, he started using some of the stones for rebuilding a ramp, which is in front of the sacrificial table. And we got pictures of that, actually, with a big tripod of wood, you know, wooden legs, three legs set up with a hoist with a crank on it. And they were cranking up some of the stones from there to be put on top of the ramp. So he basically destroyed the astronomical center of the site, not knowing. Most of the stuff was good. Most of the stuff, he just took a stone and put it back within three feet of a wall and they photographed everything. But in that case, he must have thought it was a discarded pile of just rubble, you know? And he said, well, let's use that to rebuild part of the ramp for some reason. And they did. In 1970s, we said, gosh, the center of the astronomical alignment seems to be north of the table. Because some people thought the table might be it because it's a really... You know, it's a very big feature of the site. Right. It was not. As we started learning more about the astronomical alignments, we realized that it was, you know, north of the table. We're like, well, there's nothing there. And then we went back and started reviewing his book and notes, and we got tons of that, and slides and photographs and everything, and glass slides even, you know, before the plastic slides uh, that you could look at. Right. And, um, and Melvin right. being a professional photographer, his right-hand man was a professional photographer. That was wonderful to have that, too to record all of that. I was, oh my God, he destroyed. And there they are. And the, there they are in the diagrams, the two, the two cairns wow. and everything goes to those two stone piles, you know? And so we put a wooden platform there today. So yeah, the table's um, a very large and it's got a groove on it. That's actually trapezoid shape. I thought it was always rectangular, but it's nine inches narrower at the top than it is at the bottom. So it's a ah. trapezoid. The uh, chamber I mentioned mm. that had the roof slab fallen in when it fell, that has fallen in. We, uh, it's very hard to measure it because the roof slab is kind of blocking part of it. So if we can ever get the, the roof slab out of there, that several ton roof slab, we'd like to measure it very carefully because it, it looks like the floor plan is trapezoid. It's not rectangular. And then patty chamber, we checked that and it appears to be trapezoid. And that's a uh, that that's used by a lot of ancient cultures too, whether it's in South America or even in British megalithic sites, the trapezoid shapes there too. Uh, in Ireland, the trapezoid shape shows up too, and I and I've been reading about that more recently. Going off, so that would not be out of place to have a trapezoid groove on the table and some of the floor plans being trapezoid. Um, but then now the table is facing true east and west. The whole site is orientated true north, south, east, and west mm. out of uh, true north. And there is a star back then that they could have used for reference called Thuban, and it's in the constellation of the dragon called Draco. Yes, and uh, of the serpent, you know. So. Um, but to the east of the table is the Oracle Chamber, and that Oracle Chamber is pretty fascinating because it's the biggest structure still remaining on the site. It's about 27 feet long, north and south. As I mentioned, it's vertical stacking inside of stones, and the east part of it is that core build section. It has five stone closets or niches, 
probably for offerings to be placed inside of. It has a big stone bench. It has two underground drains. These drains are storm drains to keep the, the structure dry. And there's about 12 wow. of these drains on the site. Some of these drains run 75 feet, and they're actually like tunnels. You know, they have parallel walls with capstones. Some have been excavated, and inside they'll find, you know, both modern and ancient artifacts. The ancient artifacts will be something like hammer stones, you know, stone scrapers and things like that that get washed into these drains, I guess. And some modern, some modern stuff, too, that gets washed in there, probably from the Patty family. Um, it has a tube that connects the oracle, tube, uh, oracle chamber to the table. It's called the Oracle Tube. It's six feet. It's a kind of a square tube, and it's horizontal. And below it, in the Oracle Chamber, is a stone step. It's part of the original bedrock. So they quarried part of the floor to make the floor lower so you could stand up in this structure. It's six and a half feet tall. You stand on the step, and you yell, and you're facing the west, and the voice comes out underneath the sacrificial table. And if you were standing on that ramp, I mentioned earlier, they re- removed and destroyed part of the astronomical platform to help rebuild that ramp, part of it. Uh, you stand there and you're looking down at the table, you're watching a ceremony, the voice comes out underneath the table and it makes it sound like somebody, like a ghost, um, like maybe a spirit or, you know, somebody speaking to. Well, and see, that that, that is up. where, okay, that that's, you know, theatrical background here. That That is exactly where I was going. We didn't talk about this before, but I was thinking, it was is that, you know, a ceremonial, is that a presentational uh, thing to add, you know, drama to to yeah. to some sort of a ceremony? Exactly. I think it oh my was, gosh. yeah. Wow. Yeah. And wow. Recently we realized by looking at the, at the speaking tube, the pot that comes out under the table looks like it's it's kind of rectangular or square, um, but it's actually shaped like a trumpet. You know how it kind of flares out? Right. And I believe that would help magn- magnify the voice, you know, make it yes. sound louder. And we didn't yeah. ever knew that before. It's like, wow, that's kind of acoustical <laughs> thing, I guess. That is yeah. incredible. And so we're talking about not really happenstance. We're talking about intention. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think a farmer or a shoemaker would use any of these features in that structure. It's just so sophisticated and connected to the uh, sacrificial table. You know, it has a chimney too, on the north end of it, and they had two stone louvers that would adjust the draft, and a stone that would actually slide over the top of it, blocking the entire. So you wonder if during a ceremony, smoke would come out of that hole or something. You know, because it looks like there's not a chamber. It looks just like part of the whole hilltop. You don't even know that oracle chamber exists. It's hidden. You know. Okay, smoke yeah. coming out of a chamber. Uh, what am I thinking? Something found um, in Greece uh, within the last, I don't know, decade that indicated that perhaps, um, hmm, I'm going to, uh, this is oracles? totally. Yes, yes, yes. And oracles that, that had a, right, uh, a fumarole. Right. A volcanic. And the the sibyls, et cetera, and yes. and uh, the, the uh, mystics. That's not that doesn't do it justice. But in other words, that this okay, and the idea that the smoke was somehow infused Enhanced with something, yes, something psychedelic, et cetera. Yes. Huh. Correct. Okay. Thank you, Charles, because uh, otherwise I would have thought I was, you know, I'd really you, you lost it. You were right it. there. <laughs> okay. You were right there. So, right on track. Wow. See? So I'm just wondering I how I hadn't connected that but it wow. is, it, it's from the same time yeah the same culture we, we oh my gosh all the way back to that original megalithic culture oh my gosh oh, are you thinking of delphi carol yes yes, yes. the oracle of delphi oh, thank you thank yeah, you dennis my, my, that's my, it my my wife and i went there you know on a honeymoon and um, it was pretty amazing they even had underground they had actually some of the drains like we have at our site which i thought wow. was like i 
that you know, his is beautiful Delphi, and I'm looking at the drains on the ground, you know, but you know, whatever. Okay, <laughs> little, exactly. Little, little, yes, devils in the bolts. details, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> but they, you, but we're sitting on an earthquake fault line, and Delphi is sitting on an earthquake fault line, and I think you were getting onto, I think some gases coming out of there, and those gases may have affected the mine during mm-hmm. ceremonies and could have altered your state of mind is one of the theories, you know. And I think when you Google it, you can find that out too. So maybe the gas is coming out of that crack in the bedrock, you know, there caused people to go into a different state of mind. You know, yeah, an altered an alternate, state. You know? Yes, yeah. yes. And, yeah. and oh, wow, oh my gosh, you know, this is the last place I expected this interview to go. So, <laughs> you know, this is one of the incredible beauties of, you know, having two hours and, and uh, having this um, energetic thing that just can sort of like, uh, yeah, we can uh, spring off of each other, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, yeah. Wow. So Okay, so, oh, and there, there's stuff I want to ask you, too, and in terms of, you know, I do want to talk about your, your time as a pilot and uh, this possible UFO, but before we leave um, the, the chambers and stuff and, and, and um, Charles' input, um, I, I'm, what, what, what do you and, and what does your daughter-in-law and what is your wife, I, I got to do this, it's not really, I guess it's a gender imperative, but, you know, speaking of the oracles of Delphi or the oracle, you know, females, um, mm-hmm. is there, what is, um, I don't even know how to verbalize this, but I, I guess where I'm going is um, gut level reactions of like, what's it all about? Is there, is there some intuitive connect that any of them have gotten or, or that you get? I think the feeling is, you know, it's number one, it's an ancient site and it's a ceremonial site, not a place where people mm-hmm. live that people would gather at our site. It's astronomical. It's up high. And um, sometimes ancient cultures would put things up high. Like if you didn't have something high, you know, place to put something high, you'd build a pyramid and put a temple on top of it kind of thing. But um, I think it's something to do with the heavens. Uh, you know, looking at the stars, the constellations, uh, it ties into the walls, the serpent walls, uh, probably into the ceremonies. So I think it's a place, you know, it's kind of a spiritual place where people came. Maybe it was when, you know, one of the alignments would have a big celebration, mm-hmm. perhaps when somebody was married, maybe when somebody died. But some of the structures probably served as tombs. So like megalithic sites, tombs, temples, and, um, you know, uh, monuments. And that's Stonehenge is all of those, you know, because they had cremation ashes in some of the Aubrey holes. Yes. Although it was really a temple site too, you know, it wasn't just a place to burial. Um, even our cathedrals, you know, you go in there and worship, but there may be people buried in the floor below you. Right, you know? exactly. So yes, correct. You know, it's not necessarily just a place of burial. You know, it's a place of celebration and worship. And so maybe our sites like that. You know, and and a lot of these sites are about 800 sites throughout the Northeast, and some of these sites are probably linked to our site. We believe um, probably where where people gathered. It's not their homes, not their domiciles. They would have lived in wood, bark, or you know, hide structures, which are yes. now long gone, you know, and hide to find too, you know, I mean, cause they're on the ground, you'll just find some of the stone artifacts or whatever, you know? So the gut feeling is that the place is a ceremonial place. Uh, the processional walls are where the people probably came up, did the celebrations. And then on the other side, they could have left the site. There's actually a whole processional path system through the entire hilltop, one that brings you to the site. And then one that takes you away from the site, kind of like the, uh, you know, the West Kennet Avenue near Avebury in England, that's one one example of a processional path, possibly, you know. Ah, uh, right, right. Mm-hmm. Okay, and now now this is actually, you know, this is, a, <laughs> this is kind of out there. Um, have you, <laughs> have you ever, have you ever considered, 
the possibility, or you may even have done this, and, and I would be, you know, unaware of it, um, of having any kind of, I, I don't know what I want to say, um, because it, a it's sensitive. Un- okay, perhaps. there we go. A sensitive, sensitive um, vi- visit a, a, the site. Yes, exactly. Thank <clears throat> you, Charles. A sensitive, um, uh, also called, and and unfortunately, um, you know, it, it's not a pejorative in my mind, but a, a psychic medium. Um, mm-hmm. anybody who has, has someone ever come through and, and gotten some sort of information that they conveyed to you? Uh, yeah, I mean, we've had people come up, um, you know, in the sixties and seventies, um, they did send one of the pieces of quartz crystals to a, uh, I believe it was a woman perhaps out in California and she would, there's a type of reading. I forget it begins with a P I think when you can read like crystals, uh, psychometry, that's Maybe it. psychometry. Yeah. Okay, right. By touching. Yes, right. Uh-huh. And if I can ever find that report, and it probably goes back to the mid-60s, if I can find that report and we're on maybe in the next couple of weeks, uh, if I can find that, I would love to find it. I'll photograph it. I'll send the picture uh, of that to you, that report. Oh, um, that would be great. But I can't great. remember. The, I, just, I just remember, you know, we're talking over 50 years ago. So just yes. make my dad talking about it and my, you know, my mom and some of the researchers of what the person experienced, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I think they were talking about the type of people, you know, and the time period and what the site might've been used for, but the details kind of escaped me after over 50 years. Exactly. But, um, You're right. But Hans Holzer did visit the site, I believe in 70, 71, 74 and 76 and 74, he brought up three different psychics. Uh, Ethel Myers was one of them and then three others. And I've forgotten their names, but he wrote oh, a book my. in 1992 and it was called Long Before Columbus. So that book came out on Columbus's 500th year anniversary, but it was 18 years after he brought the four psychics. I'm not sure why it took so long, but he was pretty busy <gasps> writing other books and right. TV and radio and stuff. Yes. Now the the Holzer files are on TV, and uh, they are kind of interested in maybe uh, doing something on us because there's 16 millimeter film that they took of his visits and also the tape recordings. And then he wrote the book, too. So that's a new series on Travel Channel. And the four psychics came in wow. independent. Uh, they came in separately during the course of the year. And I just read the book in the last few months, probably in December. Again, I reread it probably for the third time since 1972. And um, basically, they kind of describe the type of people, the size. And I think there are two different types of people. I believe the four psychics seem to be on the same page too, describing, you know, I think there was a shorter, darker complexion people. And then there was a taller people, maybe a little lighter complexion. Um, but it was four months ago that I read it. So I'm forgetting some of the details, right. but it's in his book, you know, and that's probably, he's one of the biggest ones. Uh, Jeff Belanger has been up, you know, I think yeah, so know New Jeff. England psychic yeah. society, or, or I got that yeah. name wrong, but yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm hoping he, to, he, yes. Hoping to reach out and get, get him, him on the on, show. Yeah. Right. And talk to him about our site too. He, he, you know, he's been there a few times, you know, and he's brought up one of the, um, one of the three, uh, hosts of that show ghost adventures, you know, that's been to our site and walked around wow. the site and everything, but we've right. had others, we've had a uh, paranormal walk, you know, and before we usually have paranormal, um, we haven't had any for the last three years, uh, well, actually four years since I retired. And I usually work weekends, so I usually miss them because they're on Saturdays. But we would have these, some of the people are very good. You know, they do a pre-ghost hunt in the theater. They explain mm-hmm. all the equipment they're going to use and what they're going to do up there. And then they go up for a couple hours at night on Saturday night, go up there and they experience this whole thing with their equipment and their, their own sensitivity, come yes. back, and then they do a briefing in the theater. But I was on the road flying usually uh, Friday through Mondays right. to get the best schedules. Mm-hmm. 
so I missed a lot of that, unfortunately. But we were, you know, kind of interested in that for sure. <clears throat> oh, that's fascinating. That that part of it never actually occurred to me. Um, and and uh, by the way, I, I think this is the part where I want to um, uh, clue the listeners in in terms of okay, this is your this is I'm going to read this. Uh, it's public service announcement from your site, dear friends. While we continue to remain open during the COVID nineteen crisis as an essential business to the mental health and well being of families, we've made a few adjustments to our policies in the hope of keeping our visitors and staff healthy. One. All ticket purchases must be made online on our store. We will no longer be accepting cash or credit cards presented in person for a contactless check-in outside the visitor center. Two, we have reduced our admission rates and tickets purchased online at the discounted rate will never expire. Even if you want to stay at home now and visit us next year, those tickets will let you in at a reduced rate. Three, the gift shop will be closed to visitors except for the use of our restrooms. Tour guide maps and instructions will be given outside by the front door. Four, the main site will remain open as usual. Please use good common sense and exercise safe physical distancing of at least six feet, etc., etc. If you or someone in your immediate family is feeling ill or has a fever, please, we ask that you stay safely at home. Thank you for all your understanding during these turbulent times. Be well, the Stone family. And that is just, oh, also, I, I don't want to forget this part. Um, there's an orientation video online, and you can download the mobile tour app with audio tour um this this is like um addressing it and uh this is just uh you know you you guys really shall we say have your act together it's it's fabulous yeah my daughter-in-law and my wife did a lot on that and i put my two cents in but yeah they it's working out really well with 110 acres there's nobody close to anybody up there you know so it's nice and nice fresh air and if they look at the app, it's pretty good. It's under America Stonehenge, and you can actually do a, a whole tour in your Lazy Boy chair if you want at home. And it has <laughs> yes. text pitches, and it talks to you, you know, so it's kind of good. And then the, you mentioned the video from the theater. I think it's 11 oh, minutes oh, long. Yes, and that's a fabulous good. video yeah. that, 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 that's that got, you know, the high spots, et cetera, and, and a bunch of history. Um, yeah, that, that's just incredible. Oh, you know, again, um, what an intriguing thing. Uh, yeah. Oh, listen, when everything loosens up and we can travel again, um, you know, and gas is like going to be what, 50 cents a gallon. I don't know yeah. what's going on. Um, but I, I would just I can't think of anything I would rather do than than uh, make that trek. That would be just a fabulous journey. Oh, oh thank you. Yeah. So. Um, so. So. All right. Now, now we've got uh, we've got some time left. Um so Charles, Charles, did you have? Did you want to go any place that I didn't let let you? I think we've pretty well covered uh, a lot of ground here tonight. We've gone all the way from 2000 BC to today. Right, exactly. So I think and, that's and good. We're, we're I think, I think we've I think we've covered just about everything. We just need to fill in all the details. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we need a little bit of explanation. I, you know, I I have often visited the. Uh, ancient sites in my area and i always do get a sense of place i can't say i'm getting any but it, it feels uh i've been to serpent mound in ohio mm. i've been to a couple other yeah. works earthworks in ohio uh i truly love uh meadowcroft rock shelter in pennsylvania oh yeah and i get just get chills every time I, I go there. Any of those. 
It's just it's just a sense of place. It's a sense that it's a special place. Um, I can't explain it, but I can, you know, I and I, and it doesn't really tell me anything, but it's uh, extraordinary. And it's I, I I consider it real. So there you go. It, it's some sort of sensor sensitivity to uh, to yeah. the um, vibes, to the energies of everything that's going on. I, I, I gone honestly before. don't know. Uh-huh. You know, maybe maybe it has something to do with ley lines, which I know absolutely nothing about. But yes, it's it's kind of it's kind of a, a extraordinary feeling. It's and it's a good feeling. So that's the that's what we get at my site too. You you stole my words. That's how we. A lot of people say that about our site too. That same. Just what mm-hmm. you just said. Uh, yeah. 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 Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it someday. Soon. Oh, I, yeah. I got to get out to Ohio and see some of the, some of the, you know, the serpent. I used to land in Columbus, right? Me in Newark. Oh, yes. and I never, I went there so many times and I was in Worthington doing over at the hotel. And I just came across some, some of the notes um, in my dad's files. And there are uh, actually some chambers in that area of Worthington, which I didn't know. And I wish I had taken the time to uh, have the van driver at the hotel bring me over or something like that, you know, to visit him. I probably stayed there 50 times, not realizing there's a, I guess wow. it's kind of a pyramidal stru- uh, structure, kind of square base. It might have been a conical uh-huh. mound, but in Worthington, I knew that they were in Newark and Chillicothe and Serpent. But I, you know, I, and I actually, retired four years ago. I actually, there, been was, there. I there was at one time yeah. a very <laughs> large say near near a hundred feet tall stone pyramid wow. east wow. of east of Columbus that wow. was dismantled in the nineteen twenties oh. for road gravel. Oh boy. Oh boy. And it was that's it was it was oh, very wow. unique in that it was one what of the mean. few stone structures wow. in uh middle America really. That's amazing. And, what a and shame where do you too. exactly? And that how many times oh. did that happen, Charles? What happened to the stone? What did they use it for? <laughs> they they paved the road with it. Okay, so what <laughs> happens when one rides over that road? Okay, well, I mean it's better it's better than building a Walmart, which is <laughs> what happened to one in Alabama just a couple of years ago. Oh, so, I heard of that. I did hear yeah. that. Yes. Yeah. What a shame. Wow. Well, I think Ohio had about ten thousand mounds. I don't know how what the number is remaining. And Indiana had about five thousand mm-hmm. uh, mounds. And because because um, Milwaukee and Madison, Wisconsin, are built on ancient mounds too. And St. Louis was Mound City. And I got pictures. Fifteen years during the uh, right around the time of the uh, Civil War, starting in the eighteen fifty, I think it was up to. 1854, I believe it was, 100 years before I was born, up to 1869. Mm-hmm. They have cranes. I didn't realize they had that type of equipment, actually tearing down those huge mounds with the cranes, leveling them for the city of St. Louis. Oh. On them. Yes. There's, there's only a couple yes. little mounds left there, but just destroying mm-hmm. them all, you know? Yeah. I know that wasn't uh-huh. intentional, but, you know, I mean, what a heartbreak. Right, that, right. that is just... Yeah. Yeah. So, so, yeah. you know, so it's such a cavalier yeah. behavior to just like hair, you know, tear yeah. it down and we'll use it for our own, our own needs. Um, okay. Before we go, I, I, as, <laughs> as in all your time, definitely Dennis, as, as a pilot, um, when we spoke before on earth radio, um, with, uh, Charles and Ron Toltbar, we, we talked about, uh, something that you saw that you could not explain something that I don't know. Well, technically, you know, it was unidentified, it was flying and it was an object. Um, can you, uh, can, can you, would you like to share that again? 
Yeah, actually, that one was actually uh, on the ground. Actually, oh, flying, on the ground. Oh. Yeah, well, flying over. You know, I was always I was always interested in the subject, so I I flew for forty two years and you know thirty seven professionally, and and I in the eighties for three years I was on the UPS system flying a seven twenty seven at night. And oftentimes we'd see things, you know, because we're flying at night and our eyes are all red, you know, and we never saw the sun for a week at a time. We had a week oh, on my. and a week off. It right. was in the wintertime particularly, you know, I'm looking at my, they look like zombies. I was a flight engineer and the co-pilot <laughs> captain who turned around and looked like, you know, like vampire. But because uh, we didn't see this, we didn't see daylight, you know, I think right. we flew once in those three years during the day. And we're like, my God, what is that? Oh, it's the sun, you know, but we would see things. And I, most of the guys I flew with were, you know, ex-military guys. And they would talk about some of the things they saw when they flew in the military. But uh, we'd see things off in the distance and they weren't, you know, encounters at the first, second or third time. These things are so far distant, but they, the thing would change color, you know, and then it would go away. You wouldn't see it. And I said, well, did that get behind a cloud? Was that a landing light? Was that Venus? And you'd come back on. But it was so far distant that you couldn't really identify it as a, you know, it was something out there, you know, but what was it, you know? And that was the problem. That was the frustration of it. And we'd all be looking at it going, yeah, that is kind of unusual, you know. Could have been a UFO or could have been something else. Uh, But we started uh, coming home from uh, one of of the researchers from my dad's research group. He had a camp on a lake. And one of my friends was with me and his father was an air traffic controller for, you know, the FAA. And because he had some interesting stories about what he saw on primary radar, you know, at mm. the uh, Boston Center, which is still there in Nashville, New Hampshire, that controls all the northeast traffic. And then New York has its own center in Long Island. There right. are 21 of those centers across the country. And he'd have some really interesting stories, particularly when he came over to the pool and they were having beers and stuff. And, his, you know, the loose the lips loosened up a little yeah, bit, you know, right. and they start talking about this stuff. But so his son was with us in a station wagon, and we drove around Manchester, New Hampshire, heading south around this outer belt of Manchester. And we saw the thing in the sky, all of us. I think there were uh, there was uh, five of us in the car. And it was just brilliant. And as we went around that outer belt, we, could, we went right around the whole thing. You know, and we never, you know, figured out what it was. But the next morning on the radio, uh, they were talking about it on the radio station. So we weren't the only ones to see it. I would oh say that's probably – it was brilliant silver – like and it was at night though you know yes. it's just very very right. brilliant it wasn't it wasn't venus i go out and venus was just out i think a couple of days ago i was looking at venus out right there. right and that's right. brilliant this is not that though this is something different totally different not and venus so, something that was my different. ufo and i ended up flying thirty thousand hours but i never had a close encounter you know i always kept my eyes open though wow wow oh this is this is incredible and and we will leave on that note thank you so much dennis stone this has absolutely been incredible and and again we will have you back behind the obsidian curtain in the next month i don't have a date to pull out of my mind at the moment thank you charles smar for you know all of your input and this was absolutely fantastic um this has been paranormal now which usually is alan b smith tonight it was me carol carl and all we can say is we are all in this together and as alan ends his show for now live in the mystery oh but don't touch that dial stay tuned for jimmy church thank you all everybody take care be safe be well we love you With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. 
Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.